Hey, Tim. Hey, John. We are going to look at some questions from the Cosmology series. Yes. Yep. That just released. Mm -hmm. Now, that just released in real time mm -hmm. for those of you listening along. Yes. The series of conversations has an interesting backstory. Yes. Yeah. For us, these conversations happened two and a half years ago? Uh, a little over two. A little over two. I think. <laughs> so, what happened? Yeah. So, here's the backstory. We were going to do six or seven theme videos. Mm-hmm and put them all together in this creation theme video series. Yeah. And the very first video was going to be on ancient cosmologies. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember what other ones mm. were in there, except mm. to say that four of the six or seven made it to life. Yeah, they came to life in the form of independent theme videos that and we made. We released those conversations, so those mm -hmm. were... Tree of Life. Tree of Life. Yep. Water of Life, which mm -hmm. had no podcast series connected to it. And that's why there's water conversation yeah. here. That's why this ancient cosmology series has a bunch of water conversations. Because <laughs> <laughs> literally in the course of those conversations was a bunch of stuff that is edited out so that you all don't have to sit through it was when we realized, oh, we shouldn't make a seven-part series. Let's just make four theme videos. Yeah. The so Water of Life, uh, the second. Third one was... Uh, Sabbath. Sabbath. And then the fourth one was Temple. Those are all really great theme videos. Yeah. And they have really great podcast series, conversation series. Yeah. But uh, these conversations about the ancient cultural context of the cosmology of Genesis 1 and Babylonian Egyptian cosmologies, yeah. we thought we were going to try and make a video about that. And then we just decided... Yeah, it's yeah. not the most strategic thing for us to do. And so those conversations sat on the digital shelf for mm -hmm. a couple of years. Yeah. And <laughs> then we thought, you know, those are really good conversations. Yeah, yeah. And so we dusted them off yeah. and threw them up and then realized some Water of Life stuff was in there. Mm -hmm. What a pleasant surprise. And it seems like mm -hmm. people have really enjoyed thinking about ancient cosmologies. Yeah. I think it's perfect for the podcast audience. Mm -hmm. I think for the video audience is yeah. a little off. Yeah. Our main content is aimed at our mission, which is helping people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And you don't need to know about ancient cosmologies. No, you don't have to. But it's definitely a fascinating rabbit hole that can enrich one's understanding of the creation stories in the Bible. You know, one, one other just quick thing about the backstory to that series. So I think in the podcast series, we in those conversations, we referenced the theme of water in the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. And we never actually ever had a full we podcast about conversation about water in the Gospel of John. But there you go. <laughs> yeah, so you might have been expecting another episode yeah, totally. where we talk about water in the Gospel of John. Yeah. So real quick, here's the sketch. Yeah. Uh, in John chapter 2, when Jesus um, storms the temple and, you know, turns the tables over and... Mm -hmm. The priests and Jerusalem leaders get in his face about it, and he says, destroy this temple, mm -hmm. and I'll raise it up in three days. Famous exchange. Yeah. And they're like, well, it took 46 years to build the temple. And then John whispers in your ear and says, he was talking about his body. And so that introduces this motif of Jesus. Well, actually, and that's developing from John chapter 1, that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt well as a tabernacle among us. Yeah. So Jesus is the temple, which is an image of Eden, the place where heaven and earth are one. So in the Gospel of John going forward then, you have this idea introduced that Jesus is the reality that Eden itself is mm -hmm. a narrative image of. Yeah. And so in John chapter 4, Jesus is that the wine? claims... Water to wine? 
to be the source of living water okay. that gives eternal life. Oh, yeah. So Jesus offers the Samaritan woman water of life, uh-huh. you know, that will never run dry. In John chapter, Beautiful story. Yes. In John chapter 7, there's a, a famous line ab- about the one who believes in me, his belly will flow with living waters. Mm. And there's a translation challenge there, but the image is of Jesus providing living water from his own self. And we actually incorporated that into the Water of Life video. Yeah, that's right. There's an image of Jesus, kind of a larger-than-life Jesus, as like a fountain. A fountain. And it's coming out of his hands more, but his hands are at his belly. Exactly. That was was Alan's way of solving that artist for that scene. And then climactically, it's when Jesus' side is gashed open Mm. with the spear, Mm -hmm. John depicts blood and water flowing down. From the Temple Mount, yeah, basically. From, from, or from the Mount from the, where yeah, the he mount, dies. Which is the, the, the Temple, Eden. Eden Mount, and so on. Yeah. So John is very clearly understands the symbolism and the development of the waters from Genesis 1 and 2. And then he's mapping it on to his story about Jesus as the ultimate Eden. So there you go. We could have talked about that over the course of an hour. but Is the water to wine, is that part of it too? That's his first miracle in John, right? Oh, sure. It is related. It's uh, different. It's a different part of the water imagery connected to purity. The water Uh, is in these jars uh used for ritual purification, and he turns that into a great feast of Eden, a Mm -hmm. wedding feast. Mm -hmm. So it's connected, but it's got other motifs going on with it there too. So water in the Gospel of John is a really neat theme study. Let's jump into some questions then. Yeah, yeah. Y'all set in, as always, really thoughtful questions that we are excited to interact with. So shall we? We shall. This first question is, from Josh Jacobs in Arkansas. Hey, Tim and John. My name is Josh, and I'm a student at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. I've been studying biblical Hebrew for about a year now, and I was wondering how you're able to tease out the nuances and appropriate meanings for some of the words that appear in Genesis 1, like reshit, bara, tohom, tohu vavohu, these words that don't necessarily fit our modern concepts of the world, especially when it seems like a lot of traditional English translations have chosen to fit these concepts into a modern framework rather than allowing them to say what the original authors meant. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, is that just kind of what you learn when you study Hebrew? It is kind of. So when you're studying a living language, you know, like Spanish or French. Ah, It's a little easier. Like, what do people mean when they say this? Correct. You can actually go like... Ask someone. In fact, the best way is to go talk to somebody who speaks the living language. And you'll pick up what are the living current ranges of meaning of the words and just start using them. The trick is even though modern Hebrew is spoken today, you know, it's very, very developed from ancient biblical Hebrew. We've talked about this because Mm -hmm. you lived in Israel Mm -hmm. and could speak ancient Hebrew. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, my first few months there, my Hebrew sound, as my, as our landlady often said, I sounded like Shakespeare. What would come to my mind is biblical phraseology, biblical Hebrew, which sounded like yeah, it's 3,000 years old yeah. to her. Yeah. So the trick is when you are learning ancient biblical Hebrew, sign up you know, for classes, you'll get vocabulary cards. Mm-hmm. And the vocabulary cards, you know, the first ones will be edits. And you'll flip it over and you'll say earth. Mm-hmm. So what any language has to do, if you're going to translate, is find words that are roughly equivalent in the corresponding language. So that's only step one. The full step is that language is an expression of culture and worldview. And so the question about how do you tease out nuances in biblical Hebrew of words that are really similar but also not similar to our English words, you just have to study how the words are used. 
the meanings of words aren't like magical things that exist in an ethereal place. Yeah, like math. Totally, yeah. It's not like that. The meanings of words is determined by how people use the words. Right. I don't know. We both are living with kids with growing vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You watch this every day. Yeah. Usually with how they'll use words inappropriately, but you still know what they mean. Right. Or they'll make up words. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. August said this one the other day. Strawberry season right now. Uh-huh. Real time. It's June. So our house is full of strawberries because we go strawberry picking a lot. And uh, August, we made these strawberry waffles, put strawberries all over the waffles. And he walked over the table and he says, oh, those look so temptating. (laughs) (laughs) Temptating. That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So he's taking temptation, but making it a verb. But I knew what he meant, Mm -hmm. even though the word was incorrect. So meaning is about people using words in context. So we just went to my uh, nephew's high school graduation. Oh, uh-huh. And they were having a hard time saying graduation, and they kept saying graduation. <laughs> yeah. We're going to the graduation. Yeah. And so I was good. like, it's such a wonderful, because then you could just say, graduations. Oh, that's right. Oh, they're merging. <laughs> they're merging congratulations yeah. and graduations. That's exactly it. Yeah, okay. So that's great. So they're merging two words to create actually a new word with a meaning that is separate from graduation or congratulations. It's the congratulations at the graduation. Yeah. (laughs) Words are malleable, so you have to study how language users use a word to know what they mean. And so, um, Josh, you're asking, how do you tease out nuances? You just have to study the language. And I suppose why, I think for some people, this feels really fresh to Mm. be like, oh, to home, it Mm -hmm. means something more than just... Mm deep water the way that a modern would think about it. Correct. Yeah, that's And right. why isn't our English translations helping us do that necessarily? Oh, well, because that's not really the purpose of a translation. Mm. A translation just is trying to give you, you know, an appropriate equivalent, and then you got to keep on going. But to understand that what the meaning of, you know, the abysmal waters in English and how that differs from the concept of Tahom in ancient Hebrew... That's not what a translation's for. Mm. You need a, a teacher or a commentator for that. Some um, translations that are more on the interpretive side, what do they call those? Yeah. Well, it's just there's a spectrum, yeah. you know? Right. Because even to use the first example, to translate the Hebrew word Eretz as earth yes. already puts you at a disadvantage in the Bible. So why do some, do, why do some translators do that? Well, I think because in some traditions of English, earth still just means land. That's true. Not like we grab a fistful of earth. A handful of earth. But the meaning of earth is shifting. That's right. I hope. It sounds it... weird to like talk about plowing the earth. So in that case, I think to translate, in the beginning, God created the skies and the land. It helps you center help, in yeah, what help. they're actually thinking about. Yeah, that's right. So to get just really pointed to your question, Josh, to rebuild the concepts and meanings of ancient biblical Hebrew words, and this is true for New Testament Greek as well, is just studying the words and how they are used in context and rebuilding the definition. So word, word study skills, not just looking a word up in a biblical Hebrew dictionary, but actually learning how to, to study all of the occurrences of a word and building a mental portrait of its meaning in your mind. It's a really important skill if you want to recover the way the biblical authors saw the world. And that's essentially what we're trying to set the table for in this series. We have a class coming out on the classroom project mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to come out this summer. Well, no, there's one out already called Heaven and Earth. No, I'm sorry, on um, word studies. like Oh, yeah, studying yeah. The art of biblical words. The art of biblical words. Yeah, yeah. We did a bio project class that'll come out. Yeah. I think in July or August. Maybe later this year. About short class. A short class 
on this very thing, how to study biblical words. Yeah. It's a how-to class. Yeah. It was super fun. So, uh, great question, Josh. Thanks for asking it. Next, we're going to hear from Dan in Connecticut. Hey, Tim and John. My name is Dan. I'm from Hartford, Connecticut. Hey, Tim, on a recent podcast, you mentioned that if someone had a Hebrew Bible and a Hebrew dictionary, they could probably understand the text. So my question is, what is the purpose of studying history and textual interpretation? How can the common person reconcile seemingly different hermeneutical ideas of people like John Salehammer or John Walton? Guys, thanks so much. You rock. <laughs> that was really kind. It was. No, no, Dan. You rock. <laughs> I hope he does rock. I hope he's in a rock band. Yeah, that would be pretty great, Dan. Yeah, great uh, question. And just to fill out that reference you're making at the end, you're referring to two Hebrew Bible scholars, both named John, both of whom have been hugely influential on me mm -hmm. and us and the Bible Project. Mm -hmm. So John Salehammer was a luminary in Hebrew Bible studies. He had a pointed and intentionally provocative way of raising this issue. He really believed, and he grew up in an era where his kind of circle in biblical studies had really been over-influenced by the importance of ancient Near Eastern studies. And it had really overshadowed studying the literary artistry and the biblical theological kind of developing ideas throughout the story of the Hebrew Bible. And so he was kind of offering a corrective and saying, you actually don't need a lot of this ancient Near Eastern historical context to read the Hebrew Bible. He loved to make that point <laughs> and mm -hmm. to agitate people. <laughs> and in one sense, and I've learned, he's right. And that's the point I was trying to get at. Right. Because I was actually asking you mm -hmm. in a very pointed way of like, you know, what if we didn't have this? And I remember referencing there was a debate going on in an undergrad. Yes, that's right. Of whether or not you did need it. That's right. And the person in our college, Professor Ray Lubeck, who was offering a perspective saying, yeah, you don't need ancient Near Eastern history as much as you might think. Mm -hmm. He was a student of John Selhammer. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. And this is related to the question just right before. The meaning of words is determined by their usage. Yeah. And so if you're reading the Hebrew Bible and you start at page one, and if you're reading in Hebrew, you can build up an internal growing dictionary. Yeah. You can do it in English too. It's just a lot more work because you have to constantly go reference it. Well, exactly. So let's just do a thought experiment. Okay. Let's say you do it in Hebrew, but it's, you're an English speaker doing yes. it. But this would be the case if you were... Speaking any other language. Yeah, Spanish, French, whatever. So uh, you could just get a Hebrew Bible, Hebrew dictionary, and start cranking. And if you let the meanings of words define themselves as the Hebrew Bible develops, you would get a lot. And if you let your imagination hyperlink things the way you're supposed to as you go through the story of the Bible, you would be able to track fully. But here's the problem. That's impossible that that would ever happen because um, none of us are living speakers of ancient biblical Hebrew. Wait, what's impossible? Oh, the little thought experiment that I'm saying is impossible. If you went to a deserted island and you had just the Hebrew Bible and a Hebrew dictionary. Why is that impossible? It's impossible because anybody doing that is coming in thinking in another language than ancient biblical Hebrew. But isn't the idea that, yes, I'm thinking in another language, but I want to then explore these words to help me form yeah, a new way of thinking. Totally, yes. But as you do that, you will unknowingly, yeah, without even realizing it, import your modern spoken language meanings into these words that you're reading. Yes, but then you do it again. Yep. And maybe it just continues to kind yep. of reform right. itself that's until exactly a lifetime right. of that, you get closer and closer. No, I think that's true. And so the question is, what are some other additional tools that can help us get closer? 
faster. And faster. And can expose the ways that I'm importing modern concepts Got it. into the Hebrew Bible. So it's or impossible the New too strong then, maybe. Oh, well. It's slow. It's slow. And it's inefficient. Okay, you're right. I guess I was being provocative. By... But I'm just saying it's not possible that anybody could do that on the first try. No, yes, on the first try, no. Because language is an expression of culture. Probably so not on your third or fourth try either. No, I mean, no. And Maybe so, by the end of your life, you may have gotten somewhat close. If you're doing a community of people for thousands of years, yeah, that's right. you probably are getting really, really close. Yeah, totally. So this is where the work of a scholar like John Walton, I have found so helpful. Yeah. Because what he's able to say is say, look, here's this biblical Hebrew word. Here's how it's used. Well, notice that it's really different than how our English translation word, yeah. what it means. And lo and behold, what the Hebrew word means is very similar to yeah. the concept of creation in Babylon and in Egypt. It's the fast pass. Yeah, it's a fast pass. And it's helping see that biblical Hebrew and biblical thought had lots of similarities and differences with the cultures and languages around them. So for me, actually, the chaos dragon is a good example and it's an example of where my thinking has developed since we had those conversations two years ago. Hmm. So when we're talking about the chaos dragon and the defeat, Marduk's defeat of Tiamat yeah. in Enuma Elish, and then I brought up how Genesis 1, there's no battle. Mm -hmm. The only sea dragon there is... In God's ordered... Yeah, is a, is a creature God yeah. makes in Genesis one twenty one. But then I brought up Psalm 74, mm -hmm. which talks about God splitting the heads of the sea dragon. Mm -hmm. And it's connected in some way with creation because hmm. he says, yours is the night, yours also is the day. Mm -hmm. And it's about God establishing order. And uh, this is where I'm at currently. I think it's intentional and important that Genesis 1 is starting the Hebrew Bible with no conflict narrative. Mm -hmm. The darkness and the Chaos waters are a neutral canvas. That yeah. was your term. And I like that. They're not an enemy. They're a neutral canvas. And the only dragon around is no threat in Genesis 1. Yeah. However, after God makes the creatures, there does turn out to be a rebel creature mm. in the garden. Yeah. A reptile. Mm -hmm. Yep. A snake. And it tries to usurp God's authority and human's authority and all that. That's the Eden narrative. And so God says, like, hey, um, there's going to be hostility between the seed of the woman and the snake and its seed going on. And, you know, there's going to come an ultimate showdown mm. between the snake and chosen oh, so line. So there will be a battle. There will be a battle. With a dragon. Exactly. Whoa. And so as you go throughout then, the Cain narrative teaches you that humans, by their moral choices, mm. can align themselves with the seed of the woman or the seed of the snake. Yeah. Cain becomes the seed of the snake. He builds the first city. Ham becomes another snakeling through his choices. <laughs> mm. And his descendant builds Babylon. Mm. Oh, and then Egypt and Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1 becomes the shrewd snake hmm. who tries to stamp out and enslave God's chosen ones, the blessed Israelites there. So you get this portrait that the nations and the empires that Israel suffered under, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, were taken over by the snake. Uh -huh. So Psalm 74 hmm. is about the response to the destruction of the temple by Babylon. Hmm. In the book of Isaiah, Rahab, who we talked about, is the sea dragon there referring to Egypt mm -hmm. in the Exodus. And so what's interesting, it's like the Marduk battle against Tiamat, that theme's been repurposed in the Hebrew Bible mm. to talk about God's victory, not over the forces creation. of creation, but over the forces of rebellion within creation. Mm. And it's about God's ultimate victory over the snake. Yeah. So it's a good example of how if you only look at 
ancient Near Eastern parallels of the battle with Marduk and Tiamat, you won't fully get what the Hebrew Bible is uniquely doing. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need to pull a John Sailhammer. (laughs) But to understand the broader context, you need to pull a John Walton. Sure. You need both perspectives. Yes, you need both. I love that. And I, but I think part of the thought experiment of can you just do it with a Bible dictionary? Yeah. And a translation. Yeah. Is to say, for a normal Christian, do you have to become some sort of archaeologist or like historian? Right. And yeah. what you're saying is, what a great gift that, you know, it really does help. Yeah. But the other side of it is like, actually, you can do it. It's just a lot of work. Yeah. And you can do it. Yeah. You can do it even in your own first language. It just takes a lot of patient rereading and trying to be self-critical that you aren't importing modern meetings and ideas into Old New Testament. Which is really tricky. It is. You see, you need help, which is why there's the wonderful world of biblical studies. And even with that, you need help because it's just so easy to let your own perspective. Then all of a sudden you see the usage in another Mm -hmm. ancient Near Eastern culture. Mm -hmm. It just becomes a mirror real quick. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Let's look at a question from Christian Swales from Spain. Yeah. Hi, my name is Christian, and I'm in Granada, Spain. What I'm learning through this series is that the ancient Israelite creation narrative is much more about the why than the how. It's the purpose of creation being told through the lens of an already established ancient cosmology. So my question is, how could that ancient Israelite why, that ancient purpose of creation, be translated or retold now through our current and modern understanding of the cosmos? That's a cool question. Yeah, isn't it? Well asked, Christian. <laughs> I was <laughs> well going to say asked. well said, but it's, it's a question. So just one thought just on that statement, it's more about the why than about the how. I really resonate with that, though I do want to also say it is giving an account of how the cosmos was ordered, Mm -hmm. and it's doing it in the categories of an ancient Israelite cosmology, through God speaking, separating, and calling things out of the land. Plants come out of the land, the creatures come out of the land, and so on. So there is a how, but that how is based off of an ancient cosmological understanding. Yeah, maybe why you're saying that is to an ancient Israelite, they wouldn't make that distinction. Uh, Yeah. But now us looking back... We could tease that out, but to them, that didn't matter. Yeah. For them, the how, God separating, speaking, calling things out of. Was also the why. Was also the the how. Exactly. Yeah. So I think what we need to do, because we are in a different cultural setting, is we need to create just a distinction between those two. And what we can say is different cultures have different imaginative explanations of how the cosmos works. Yes. And we have one too. And we're pretty sure it's right. Well, as but moderns. But it's constantly being developed yeah. and tweaked. And there's and things changed. we do not know. And there's a lot we don't know. <laughs> this is stuff called dark energy. What's, yes, <laughs> what's dark that? Matter. Yeah, what really is a quark? <laughs> yeah, so there we're to the chronological snobbery thing. Yeah. Because we inhabit a later and a developed view of the cosmos that is informed by really sophisticated tools. Yeah. Scientific tools for understanding. We mistake it for like... We know the how now, right? Well, we mistake it for we know the how. That's what I'm saying. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, That's right. And our grandkids, you know, um, if humans are still... Yeah. Alive. <laughs> when our they'll they'll be around. sure they've got it figured out. Yeah, they'll be sure. And they'll look back at us and they'll be like, oh, man, they had no clue about what X, Y, Z was. Yeah. So I think the point is, is cosmologies are always 
a combination of how and why. And that's interesting that now it's hard for us to split those two. Yes, it's hard how for us. How and to, why. Yeah, because but, we're living in our own cosmology. Exactly. But for later generations, it will be much easier for them to see that. And so the question is, what are the worldview value claims being made by any cosmology? Because mm -hmm. any cosmology, when you give an account of how and why something came into existence, you're not just talking about the mechanisms. Mm -hmm. You're talking about what it is and why it's here. So these are worldview questions. So cosmologies are a vehicle for way bigger questions like, where are we? What kind of place is it? <laughs> this philosophy. Yeah. So like, is the world we inhabit, is it eternal? Is it finite and contingent? We're still arguing about that. Yeah. Is it static or is it dynamic? Is it um, cyclical? going in eternal mm. cycles, mm. or is it linear, going in a sequence forward? That right there is an ancient debate that spans mm. cultures and times. And uh, the Greeks thought one thing, and mm. that developed, and the Jews and the Christians developed a unique contribution based on the, the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. The history. That has, history has a trajectory. Yeah, that reality has a beginning point, that reality cannot be the basis of its own existence. Because mm. all reality as we know it is contingent. But it's still a debate. It is, yeah. But logically, you have to just play it out. There must be some cause. This is famous about the first cause, stuff like that. As far as we understand. As far as we understand, that's exactly right. So what I'm saying is the why, Christian, being communicated by Genesis 1, is very much a set of larger claims about the nature of reality. That there is a personal being who is the ultimate Ultimate. One ordering and the one bringing life. Mm -hmm. The one guiding. Mm -hmm. And that uh, there is some sort of linear forward development that's going to culminate in something. Mm -hmm. Those are major claims about the nature of reality <laughs> that are communicated through this ancient Israelite cosmology. Yes, and that humans are made in its, yeah. his yeah. image. Yeah, that humans are both emerge from the material order, but then also have the ability to transcend their origins and be a part of something that's much more cosmic and much more transcendent. Well, that's major. I mean, we're taking a philosophy class right now yeah. all of a sudden. But what I love about his question mm -hmm. is that it's asking, can we do this in a fresh way yeah. through a new cosmology? Yeah. And it seems like you totally could. Yeah. And it would be a really wonderful mm -hmm. project, and it would be really fun to read someone or watch someone's version of that. Yeah. And I'm sure stuff like that exists, actually. Yeah, yeah actually, here, let me, uh, you know, a really helpful book along these lines. So John Walton, a Hebrew Bible scholar, has yeah. already come up. He's done work on this in his Lost World of Genesis 1 and Lost World of Adam and Eve. Another popular level treatment that I thought was really fun that I came across is by a biblical scholar, Robin Perry, called, called The Biblical cosmos a pilgrim's guide to the weird and wonderful world of the bible mm. and it's a, a really great introduction to the three-tiered world of the bible the concept of the waters above the waters below the dragon all these things it's a really uh, fun and uh, his daughter if i'm remembering correctly his daughter's a graphic designer so she did all the artwork in the book it's really cool and part of one of his main whole points is that the view and the cosmology of the biblical authors was also developing as the biblical canon and collection was developing. And so the way that the apostles in the New Testament, they're also being informed by developments in Greek and Roman culture 
in conversations about this. And so their language has those accents to it as well. Mm -hmm. And Jewish and Christian views of cosmology developed throughout history and kept changing, mm -hmm. updating mm -hmm. to Aristotelian mm -hmm. and Copernican revolutions. Mm -hmm. And all those generations were able to still find relevance and meaning in the ancient cosmology of the Bible right. and translate between them. And, and that translation effort, I think, is yeah, what he's getting at. Exactly. That's, Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Carl Sagan type or a Neil deGrasse Tyson type yeah, yeah. who also could then translate? Yeah. Both be the cosmologist. Yeah, sure. Give you a tour of the cosmos, but then translating these ideas into it. Yeah. Wouldn't uh, and, that be awesome? Yeah, totally. These theologians and, and scholars, they, they're people doing this work. It's great work. It's synthetic work of like science and cosmology, the works of Alistair McGrath. A scientist and theologian. Excellent work on John Polkinghorne, who's a physicist and a priest and theologian. They're doing excellent work at the forefront of scientific cosmology hmm. and Christian cosmology or biblical cosmology. Well, that's two great names to follow up with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good stuff. All right. The uh, next question is from Kayla in Florida. Hey, Tim and John. My name is Kayla, and I live in Lakeland, Florida. I really enjoyed the series on ancient cosmology, but it does bring up a certain level of tension for me as someone who grew up in a tradition where Genesis 1 through 3 was taught from a more literal perspective. Hearing about the Bible's influence from other ancient cosmologies causes me to pause and wonder how much of it is quote-unquote true. So how should this new understanding readjust my approach to these chapters? Thank you guys so much for all that you do. Yeah, get right to the real Just question. Just getting to it. <laughs> no, because I, I'll, yeah. for me too, yep. even in, in an undergrad, I, I had a geology class from a professor who mm -hmm. really wanted us to understand these as literal. Yeah, yeah so a couple of challenges there. Um, one is the meaning of the word literal. And uh, the other one, is this really a new perspective? So part of what we're trying to say is that there's actually nothing new here. What's new is our synthesis of the biblical cosmology and translating it and harmonizing it with modern cosmological ideas. That's the new thing. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is recover the ancient understanding of these narratives the way the biblical authors intended them. Yeah, It feels new because it hasn't been the main way these narratives have been read in the last couple hundred years in our cultural setting. Yes, in the last couple hundred years, there has been a, a large contingent of Christians mm -hmm. who looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and thought, this must be like mm. the cosmology books mm. that are being written in sure. our era, yeah. which are like explaining literally mm -hmm. this happened. Mm-hmm. And by literal, like in space-time, you know, this yeah, explosion yeah, sure. yeah. happened and then caused this atom to form, which then did this, and then suns formed like that, like yeah. literally happened in, <laughs> in a modern cosmology. Yeah. Well, yes, I think we need even a bigger frame to, to talk about it. <laughs> okay. So before really the era... I mean, this has happened in, in major cosmology revolutions, like in the Copernican revolution or the development of telescopes and mm -hmm. Galileo. And, you know, I think actually we're on the spinning rock around the sun, not vice versa. Right. So there were those. But with the advent, especially of the modern sciences, geology, paleontology, physics, and so on, and then certainly biology, there began to open this window of information coming in from these fields of a deep, deep sense of time in history that 
reached way beyond what anyone had ever imagined. Up till that point in history, Christians and Jews reading the Bible, for them the literal meaning, it was the way the world was imagined to be. So the way the biblical story described history was the way it was. And there was no other alternate narrative to challenge it. Right. But with the growing narrative coming out of these scientific disciplines, there became this alternate narrative that was very difficult to square. This deep sense of time of hundreds yes. of thousands and millions because of Genesis years. Because Genesis 1 does not take that into account. You, seven days and you're there. Yeah, seven days. Seven days in human show up. Or do six days in human show up. the genealogies backwards from Genesis mm. and you know, you're somewhere years ago. in the, or 6,000 6, years ago. James Bishop Usher did the kind of definitive math on oh, that okay. one. And so then you have this tension between, well, wait, which is real? Or what is the literal? Which one's right? Which one's right. And so the literal meaning came to be identified with a harmonization. Well, what if we take the data from these sciences and because it doesn't correspond to what the biblical chronology or whatever seems to be saying, what the literal meaning is, is to fuse the cosmology, the material realities we are learning about from Uh the sciences, but to fuse it with the biblical chronology. And then that becomes the literal face value meaning. Okay. And so I think the trick is, is that the word literal started being disconnected from what the biblical authors meant. Because the biblical authors had no concept of, like, photons. No. Or geological ages. And uh, But if you were to talk to a, a biblical author and you would say, here's what I mean by literal. What happened in space-time yesterday? Versus yeah, sure. what did yesterday mean to you? <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah, sure. To me, the distinction between those two things really mattered. Yeah. Maybe they don't as much to you and the way you're going to tell a story, but they mean so to me. Yeah, that's right. And then in that case, and they're like, okay, I get it. I get what you mean by literal. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and so I think the point is that the word literal, a literal interpretation of the Bible, came to be identified with a fusion or a harmonization between the biblical words Mm -hmm. and these more modern categories from geology and time and so on. And so we create this new thing that's never been before Mm -hmm. that has been identified with the literal meaning of Genesis 1 and 2, but it's really rather novel to the last few centuries. Mm -hmm. If you read Augustine of Hippos, one Mm -hmm. of the most influential Christian thinkers of all time, Mm -hmm. living in the 300s in northern Africa, he wrote a whole work called The Literal Interpretation (laughs) of Genesis 1 and 2. Mm. And if you go read it right now, you'll be like, whoa, this is not literal. But for him it was. But for him it was. Yeah. And so it's helping us see the literal interpretation what we mean by that in our American context right now is itself a novel entity in the history of interpretation. So, You're talking about the synthesis. Some people think the literal means don't try to synthesize at all. Yeah. Just what does the Bible say? Yeah, that's right. And specifically, what did the biblical authors intend to mean? And so once we do that, we say, well, okay, what words did they use to express what they mean? Oh, what did they mean by those words? And now we're to the earlier questions of the meanings of words are always connected to worldview and bigger cultural concepts. And so I think the challenge here, here's what at least I've experienced in pastoral settings, is that, well, okay, so if the cosmos being created in Genesis 1 has three levels, and Mm -hmm. there's waters up there, Mm -hmm. and they're still up there, Mm -hmm. like they weren't just up there before the flood, like Psalm 104 and Psalm 148, they're up there right now. Yes. Well... I know that that's not how the universe is constructed. We're on a sphere. And so the Bible is wrong because it's not true. And so that's where I think where we're to the question of what do we even mean? Like just because a cookbook doesn't read like a New York Times editorial, does that mean it's not true? No, what it means is that's not its purpose. Yeah. 
So in biblical Hebrew, the word true means trustworthy or faithful, meaning it does what that's it was a different word than literal. designed to do. It is, but in our context, something being literal and something being true have become interchangeable ideas. In the sciences. What do you mean? Oh, in art, we don't mean that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But in sciences, we do. And Genesis 1 ah, ah. to a modern is the Bible doing science. And I think that's exactly. the rub. And in history. And in history. Science is in history. That's right. We want to make sure that the literal is also the true. In other things, we're, we're okay with that not being the case. Yeah, that's right. But so the Bible's doing history. Yeah. And if the Bible's doing science yeah. to a modern, those two things need to align. Correct. Yep. And so if science is diverging from what I'm reading in my Bible, yeah, then what yeah. am I going to trust? Yeah, that's how the problem is presented. And I think what I hear you saying, though, is that the Bible's not doing science. Yeah, when we take the language of the Bible, which was originates from a different culture and time and a, from a people who had a different vision of the construction of the cosmos, and then we use those words and concepts for our modern concepts of what light is yeah. and the age of the universe, yeah. it's oranges and apples. Right. We need to just let the Bible be an apple. So why do you think Kayla's feeling tension? Oh, because of what, of what you described. If those early narratives of Genesis aren't offering us what I would see on a video camera mm -hmm. if I was there. Or what a scientist would create. Then they're not true. Mm -hmm. Or they're not trustworthy. And so we got to back up and say, well, but what, was, what were those narratives designed to communicate and designed to so do? So the way through the, the tension reader? is to yeah. say... Instead of asking the question, is this literal? Mm -hmm. Ask the question, is this trustworthy? Yeah. And then when you are asking the question of literal, what do you mean by that? And if your meaning doesn't align with what the Bible's doing, be comfortable with that. Yeah. I think where people get really itchy is, okay, but then Jesus was literal. Jesus yeah. literally lived. Yeah, totally. Did yeah. he literally rise from the dead? And that's important. It's super important. Right? <laughs> it's actually like the foundation of a Paul seems to Christian think that's really important. It's super important. Yeah, that's right. So at what point, if you start to get a little fuzzy on like, well, certain parts of the Bible are trustworthy, even though they might not be literal in the way that you're yeah. forcing it to be literal, at what yeah. point does yeah. that break down? Yeah. That's, again, so this is why um, I thought I would be able to talk about this in the more clear, concise way. The word literal, if we mean by the word literal, what the author is designed this text to accomplish and yes. communicate. Okay. Paul and the apostles, people who wrote the four gospels, designed those narratives very clearly to make a claim that this man who was Israel's Messiah, God of Israel become human, was murdered and buried and hundreds of people encountered him alive from the dead. It's fairly obvious that's what they mean. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Their literal that's meaning. That's what they mean. Exactly. So what are Genesis 1 designed to do? They are literally talking about the construction of the cosmos in a seven-day Sabbath cycle. The next narrative literally talks about the creation of the cosmos as a garden being grown out of the land, and the chronologies are not the same. So then you have to say, what's the literal meaning of Genesis 1 and the Garden of Eden narrative next to each other? What did an author intend to communicate? And if what they intended to communicate was a claim about the physical material processes and timelines through which reality came into existence, yeah. you've got some problems because there's different timelines. It seems like what the author was more concerned about was some other things. Yeah. And the literal meaning is those. Mm. And that's what the questions before were about.
Um, That's helpful. Thank you. And yeah. I think then the, the way through the tension too is the point then isn't to try to convince someone about any modern cosmology. No. Yeah. You know, whether right. or not you want to believe the earth's 6,000 years old and appears older. Correct. Or you want to believe that the earth is billions of years, or yeah. the universe is billions of years old. Yeah. We get to sidestep that conversation. Yes. That's, and we get that's to right. say, yeah. what are these two yeah. chapters yeah. trying to say? That's right. Like, what's the points that they're trying to make? That's right. And it doesn't happen to be either of those things. Yeah, that's right. It's something else altogether. Something else altogether. Yeah, the literal meaning, that is the meaning intended by the ancient biblical authors, it stands independently of whatever someone's vision of the... It's a very uniting perspective because you could go in Mm -hmm. and you can say like, hey, if you believe the earth is 6,000 years old and that's really important to you, that is totally fine. That's right. But let's not miss some really cool stuff happening in these chapters that seem really important to the authors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the tension almost feels like, do we have to have an us versus them of like, Hmm. there's not. There's like, we all can come together. Correct. Regardless of your modern cosmology. Yeah, yeah. And see what this text has to offer. Correct. And so that's in effect what the interview with Joshua Swamidas. Which was last week. Yeah, which was last week. Which was, and again, we are dipping our toes out of our normal... (laughs) conversations. But for me, I appreciated his book because he was saying, no matter what your perspectives or convictions are about historical Adam and Eve, what we ought to be able to do is read the biblical text on its own terms. And then lo and behold, there is all of the scientific data that just hasn't been brought up yet because of the modern debates. Mm -hmm. And when you integrate those two, you get a hypothesis that emerges that could be at home in any of the views about historical or symbolic Adam and Eve. Yeah. So that's why I really appreciated his contribution, because it was very much in the spirit, I think, of what we're trying to do in this series, which is create that middle ground where we can all come from different positions and just sit at the feet of the biblical authors and try and hear them on their own terms. That is, hear the literal meaning of Genesis 1. Now, when you have that conversation and you bring up all these other ancient Near Eastern cosmologies and show that it does kind of set it up, you know, to someone to feel like, wait, Mm. you're telling me I can't believe the earth is young, Mm -hmm. you know, almost... Mm. It almost feels that way potentially. And you don't have to frame the conversation that way. You yeah. can still get to all this really interesting stuff about the waters yeah, sure. and the abyss yeah. by just looking at the Bible. That's right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's... Yeah. In fact, actually, our next question is an interesting kind of real specific example of a similar question that we just responded to from Kayla. This is from uh, Leonardo in Ohio. Hi, my name is Leonardo Caraballo. I'm from Puerto Rico, living in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm taking the heaven and earth class while you're having a series talking about these topics. My question, and I hope I'm not getting out of the context, it is, in the pre-creation story, you guys talk about the different cosmologies and how they all have similarities. But I've always been interested in what part of the creation the Jurassic or prehistoric era takes place and when and where we can see the mention of dinosaurs, if it is before the Wall and West state or part of the creation known in the Hebrew Bible. Thank you for everything. Thanks, Leonardo. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. He's taken the Heaven and Earth class. Yep. Great class. Yeah, I had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did a wonderful job. And a, a lot of people are wondering, mm-hmm. like, where did dinosaurs fit yes. in the story of the Bible? Yeah. Uh, we have this idea of the Jurassic era yeah. or, you know, all these big eras of human history, human history, history of the Earth. Yeah. And so in the Bible, you just get like, there's the wild and waste. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... There's animals and then humans. So like, where are the dinosaurs? Yeah, this is a great case study in this conversation we're having connected to Kayla's question earlier. So just like the biblical authors had no awareness of quantum physics or 
photons. The creation of light in day one has nothing to do with the creation or physical existence yeah. of photons. They've never seen them it. or heard of them. And so it would be inappropriate for us to import our concept of photons into Genesis 1 and say, look, God's creating photons, but without Let a Let there be photons. Let there be photons. So similarly, these concepts and awareness that paleontology and geology have given yeah. us of these Jurassic prehistoric periods yeah. and of these creatures and so on. The biblical authors had no awareness. They hadn't run into any of these bones. No, no. And if they had, they well, didn't oh, know how to... Well, I wouldn't... They didn't construct them and realize like, oh, these things are from... It's entirely possible, even likely, that they came across like dinosaur bones and okay, stuff like that. Sure. I mean, the concepts of the dragon came from somewhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and who knows what kind of animals were around. Yes. Animals go extinct. Totally, that's right. So I, I think the point is more that we have these concepts of, of dinosaurs yes. that live during this time. Right. And then we go to the Bible and say, well, the Bible is about the world that yeah. I live in. So Unless where we talk the... about every time. That's right. And so we take a modern concept of dinosaurs from the Jurassic period, yeah. and then we look within the biblical timeline for a place to slot them. Yes. And we're doing that apples and oranges things again. Right. We need to let the biblical authors... Do their thing. Do their thing within their cultural context and cosmology. And then we need to let our cultural narratives that are growing and dynamic speak their story. And we need to bring them into dialogue on the level of those ultimate philosophical questions. Mm -hmm. And so this is my conviction, right? So I yes. know that there are people who love and follow Jesus passionately and they disagree. And they think we really do need to integrate those timelines with each other. Mm. I think the one thing I would just offer is to say, but aren't we starting to make the Bible say and mean things that the biblical authors had no concept of? Mm -hmm. And in that case, we're not doing biblical interpretation. But God had concept of it. Yeah, of course. You know? But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is about how God made these humans, the vehicle, yeah. and made their language, and therefore their cultural categories. And the way their minds work. And the way their minds work, the vehicle of what he wanted to say. Yeah. So in that sense, I, I think it's a misguided quest in terms of interpretation of the literal meaning yeah. to look for dinosaurs in the Bible because it wasn't a part of the concept or tradition of talking about the origins of the cosmos. Yeah. But what you could say, we know dinosaurs existed. We've seen their remains. And they're, they give all the indications of being unimaginably old to us. <laughs> <laughs> like really, really old. Way before you know people were ever around. And so you do have to then go... Huh, how does that fit into my yeah. understanding of God and the cosmos? Sure, that's right. And yeah. what can you say? Yeah, the emergence of life on our planet is like nothing short of a miracle that it's here and that it has survived as long as it has and developed in all these fascinating ways. It's mm -hmm. truly remarkable. Mm -hmm. And that we can like know from fossils in the ground like this amazing history of life yeah. on our planet. And God is apparently very patient, hmm. very patient. But when we're talking about these deep, deep periods of time back into prehistory and so on, it's just a different example of like, you know, the origin of galaxies, you know, and nebula and space gases that gravity pulls together into stars and then planets and so on. And it's very similar. It's yeah. just like cosmos is... It's a mystery. Yeah. It's interesting. I know there are many Christians who are just deeply suspicious of the sciences mm. because they think the sciences have an agenda that are mm. anti-God. Mm. And, and that has been and is true. Mm -hmm. 
in some, though not all, yeah. wings of the sciences. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like saying sports are bad. <laughs> like, well, maybe some are. Uh, and really, I think what we mean is some people in different sports have maybe really distorted agendas and yeah. do things in destructive ways. But yeah. To just say. And it gets to as extreme as like science is lying to us about the earth being round. There's some people yeah, who yeah, think that's that. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. All the way to a less extreme of mm -hmm. maybe science is lying to us about the age of the earth or about how old these dinosaur bones are mm -hmm. to like maybe science is lying to us about what's happening with the climate. Like sure. there's sure. all of these things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And these are the culture wars. These are the culture wars. That's right. And there's a way of like, in one sense, we're sidestepping that. And we're saying we don't have to talk about that. Yeah. That's right. But another sense, the question here is saying, but when you do encounter those kind of things, mm -hmm. then what do you do? Yeah. So let's say you encounter and you trust mm -hmm. science enough that you're like, okay, these mm -hmm. animals roam the earth, mm -hmm. but I also really trust the Bible. Yeah. So yeah. what am I supposed to think about dinosaurs? They are part of God's creation. Yeah. Yeah. Just like quasars are. The Bible mm. doesn't talk about quasars, Yeah. but they're real <laughs> and they existed long before humans ever did. In many ways, there's no difference. And so here to where, where our bigger concepts of what is the Bible in the first place, it's God. It's our conviction mm -hmm. that like the beautiful mind is reaching out to us through the story of this people and through the authors of these texts, but has chosen to accommodate and speak through the language and culture and concepts of the people that wrote these texts. And if that's your foundation for understanding what the Bible is, then it makes quasars or dinosaurs a very interesting question, but they're not relevant to understanding the Bible because the Bible just doesn't talk about those things. Last but not least, we're going to uh, listen to a question from Jesse in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, John and Tim. This is Jesse Lusco in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You have been an immense help to me. Here's my question about the ancient cosmology series. Is there any indication that later biblical authors are aware of the discontinuities between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Do they see them as a unified whole? What about ancient rabbis or early Christians? Would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Cool. And so what he's talking about is Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse That's 3. That's right. This is a seven-day narrative. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it bleeds into chapter 2. Yeah is God creating out of the deep abyss yeah. in a seven day, uh, seven yeah. days. And humans show up on the sixth day yep. after the animals. Yeah. And then in the second story that starts in Genesis 2, 4, four slash 5. Yeah. <laughs> God creates out of a wilderness mm -hmm. and humans are actually created... First. First, before the animals. Before the animals, yeah. And so those are kind of the big differences. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to spot, right? Yeah. So wouldn't have Correct. any of the other biblical authors been aware of these discrepancies right. and right. what did they do with them? Yeah. So we're back to the literal meaning. But if what we mean by literal is what these texts are designed to communicate. Mm -hmm. So if the purpose of the text was to give a unified linear sequence, mm -hmm. it's a very difficult reading experience. Yes. <laughs> the author, and that's what we experience. That's what we experience. So then I think that should force us to go back, oh, maybe the thing that I'm supposed to get here is not that but another set of ideas. So if you begin to compare and contrast repeated words and categories, what you get is something more like, like think of two paintings. Oh, this goes back kind of similar to our conversation with John Walton. It's an illustration that he's used before that I like. Think of one as like a view of the night sky from a Hubble 
Space Telescope, mm-hmm. and then another view like uh, Vincent van Gogh's mm. uh, Starry Night. Mm-hmm. Two representations of the, night sky. of the same reality, the night sky. They're very different in their surface presentation. Yeah. And what if Genesis 1 and 2 are, are more like that? And so that both are giving complementary portraits of the nature of the cosmos, the role of humans and human identity within God's purposes in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that, they really are parallel. So, for example, the role of the spirit. This actually is great for an example, and I just learned this. I taught a class on Ezekiel last week, and this hit me like a ton of bricks. So, in Genesis 1, God's spirit is present in the dark waters. In Genesis 1, verse 2, we talked about that, and uh, God begins speaking. In Genesis 2, God's uh, breath is present in that he infuses it into the dirt to make the humans. In Genesis, he does? His breath. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah he breathes into the, the, mm-hmm. the dust, uh, the breath of life. That was already been formed. Yep, that's yeah. right. But the point is that God forms the dirt, mm-hmm. but the dirt is it's inert. Not a human yet. Yeah, or, I was about to rhyme. The dirt is inert. The dirt is inert. Uh, until God breathes into it. And turns it mm-hmm. into That's right. Dirt. In Genesis 1, humanity is male and female already. Mm-hmm. In Genesis 2, there's just a singular human who is split, and then you have man and woman. Mm-hmm. So you have these different concepts. In Genesis 1, they're told to be fruitful and multiply. That language is not used in Genesis 2. It's about the two becoming one, flesh. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the book of Ezekiel, there's a sweet set of three essays or three paragraphs that are all right next to each other. The second half of chapter 36, and then Ezekiel 37 has two parts to it. And all three of them are meditations on the restoration of Israel from exile Mm -hmm. back to a new Jerusalem. And each one of them is riffing off of different elements in Genesis 1 and 2. And it treats different ideas and words from Genesis 1 and 2, but unifies them. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 36, God says he's going to recreate his new covenant people by putting his ruach within them, putting his spirit within them. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, yeah, sweet. Genesis yeah. Genesis That's chapter 2. Always a good thing happens yeah. when God's ruach shows up. And then uh, he says he's going to plant a new garden where mm. there'll be fruit trees multiplying, and you're like, yeah, sweet, the trees multiplying. Mm. So this is all Genesis 2 kind so of stuff. It's all Genesis, Genesis 2. And then he says at the end, and they will be fruitful and multiply. Mm. But that's language not from the Eden narrative. From it's Genesis, from Genesis, Genesis 1. 1. Mm-hmm. So that shows you Ezekiel mm, views Genesis 1 and 2 as complementary, mm-hmm. and he'll use the language of those two creation stories and blend them together mm. to talk about new creation. Mm-hmm. He does the same thing in the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, he does the same thing in the story after the Valley of Dry Bones, where he talks about, he says, get two trees, and then he says, write on them the names of Judah, and then Joseph, the divided brothers, uh-huh. the divided tribes. And then he says, I'm going to put them back into that new Eden, planted back in 36, and the two will become one. Hmm. And then he says, and one king will reign or rule over them. So he's taking the two becoming one from and the Garden of two. Eden but he's getting the image of God ruling and reigning from Genesis 1. Mm. So he's taking, once again, concepts from both The ruling stories. and reigning being the image of God stuff? Yeah, and it's the new David Messiah. Mm. So the point is, is, here's an example of a later biblical author who sees these two first creation narratives as complementary portraits referring to the same thing. Yeah. So those are just recent insights that I had, and I was like, wow, that's good. Ezekiel, that guy's brilliant. And you can see it continuing on into the early Jewish literature of the Second Temple in the New Testament. They don't seem to have a problem 
with no. Genesis 1 and 2 having different timelines. They just quote and interact with them as if they're complimentary. And mm-hmm. to me, that was an early clue many years ago, mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe the problems that I have, I'm bringing the wrong expectations to these narratives. So there awesome. you go. Great. Cool. Thank you so much for sending in these questions for the Cosmology series. Mm-hmm. It's a great series. Thank you, yeah. Tim, for bringing us through. Yeah. These are always wonderful questions. Increasingly, increasingly wonderful. <laughs> and uh, up next on the podcast actually is, um, you know, we've been doing this podcast for five or six years. Yeah. Over five years. Over somewhere. five years. Yeah. And we've put out a new episode every week. Yeah. We haven't missed a week. Yep. <laughs> Every single week. <laughs> yeah. And that's not just you and me. That's a whole team of yes. people working really hard yeah. to put this stuff out there. And uh, yeah, we've our team's never really taken a break. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a break of sorts in that we're going to, um, for the next five weeks, we're going to re-release some of the top mm-hmm. podcasts mm-hmm. from the last five years. Mm-hmm. They generally are the first episode in a, in a series. Mm. And they're usually some of our older series because they've been out the longest, so they've got the most listens. Yeah. They're also ones that we often recorded like on the porch at your house or in (laughs) in a closet somewhere. Yes. The sound quality is really different. One of our first audio booths was literally under a stairs. (laughs) Yeah, totally. A set of stairs. And you can just hear people talking and (laughs) footsteps and stuff. Yeah. So we're going to remaster those and re-release those. And that'll be a good way to kind of reintroduce to some old series Mm -hmm. that you might be interested in re-listening to or listening to for the first time. Yep. So that'll be for the next five weeks. And then we've got some other cool content we're cooking up and some really amazing new series starting in the fall and uh, I'm really excited about all of that mm-hmm. Bible Project is a nonprofit organization that uh, exists because of well because of generosity of thousands of people like you pitching in so we can make these resources but the purpose of all of this is to experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus and we do this podcast we've got videos we've got other resources we've got a graduate level classes and it's all free And it's thanks to you. So thank you so much for being a part of this with us. This week's episode was produced by Cooper Peltz, our lead editor, Dan Gummel, assistant editor, Zach McKinley. All the questions were compiled by Christopher Mayer and the show notes by Lindsay Ponder and the theme music by the band Tents. As in the kind of tent that you camp in. As in the kind of tent you camp in. (laughs) Tents. G'day, this is Chad and I'm from South Australia. I first heard about Bible Project in 2018 when I was helping our church read through the Bible in a year. My favourite thing about Bible Project is their commitment to presenting the Bible's big picture story in an approachable and meaningful manner. As a pastor, I often recommend the Bible Project to my church community. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads people to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, classes and more at BibleProject.com.